You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. We sit down with Bob Carr, who was the founder and CEO of Heartland Payment Systems, one of the largest payment processors in the United States, which he sold in 2016 for over $4 billion. He is now the CEO and chairman of the board for Beyond, which strives to simplify operations, reduce costs, and streamline payments for owners of small and mid-sized businesses across the country. On today's show, we talk about what's it like to sell a company for over $4 billion? How did the CEO impact on individual employees change as the company grew from 10 employees to 100 and 1,000? How should one think about life and what they do? This and much more. And remember, please subscribe, write a review on iTunes, and share with your network to encourage us to create great content like this. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Bob, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm super excited for this interview. I was introduced by a great friend, Elena at Provisors, who now works with you. What she told me, what I've seen online, all the research I've done, this interview is going to be exceptional and it's going to actually cover a lot of topics that most of our listeners may not have heard in the past around family, around roles, responsibilities, around more than just a company. To begin with, Bob, just to give our listeners a little background, you sold a company for over $4 billion. What was that experience like? Well, there's a lot of parts to that question. (laughs) The short answer is it was one of the more depressing times of my life. And the reason for that is because so many of... We had 4,460 employees at that time. And they were all pretty disappointed that the company was sold. And uh, it was very difficult for me to get to them to talk about much of anything because the buyer pretty much set me aside and and wanted me to stay out of the way because they were going to change our business model. And I think a lot of the employees sensed that that was going to happen and there was not a darn thing I could. So I I think that's a surprising answer for you. But I will say this, the run-up to that was exhilarating in in every way. It was a long run up. I was 70 years old when the company was sold. And every time I would get close to reaching a goal, I would be creating a higher goal. (laughs) And it just worked out that way. It just was a natural part of the evolution of my efforts. My goal was to be a, a $2 billion company that our employees could own half of and Wall Street owned the other half. It didn't work out that way. We got to four, we went from two to 4 billion in like 18 months. It took like 50 years to get (laughs) the first half in about 18 months to get to the the second half and learned a lot in that process. Okay, let's go even further back then. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your career from the very beginning up to what you're doing right now? I had an unbelievable start in my business, in my professional career. I was a a kid who grew up out in the country, was a B plus student in high school, 
got married when I was 19. I grew up in some difficult circumstances like most of America, most of the world. When I got out of the house, I grew up in a house with nine people and two bedrooms. Literally did not have a a bedroom or a bed to sleep on. We slept on my brother and I on the couch. And my father was very abusive and did not want me to go to college. My older brother went to the Coast Guard Academy. So I went off at the age of 17 to the University of Illinois, and I was scared to death that I was going to flunk out. One of my neighbors flunked out, a couple others, and I was told that 40% of the freshmen at Illinois flunked out. Turned out to be true. But since I didn't want to flunk out and have to go back to the house I grew up in, I just worked really hard, and I was uh, awarded... uh, membership in the Phi Eta Sigma, which is a fraternity for the top 2% of the freshman class. So I got that. I was shocked. I think a lot of my teachers were shocked. And I went on to graduate in three years. And so I graduated from college at the age of uh, 20. And I stayed on my fourth year to get my master's degree. And this is where I got really lucky in life. These things called computers were... uh, We're getting more and more powerful and commonplace. A brand new community college was opening up after I got my bachelor's, my master's degree from Illinois in computer science. And at the age of 21, I'm hired as a faculty member of this brand new community college where none of the teachers knew anybody else. And I had a, a friend ran around and talked to the faculty and got me elected to become president of the faculty when I was 22 years old. I was one of, there were only six of us in the master's degree program for computer science. The very first year, the very first program we were told in the country. And so I went up to Parkland College, head of the computer department and president of the faculty, and life was good. (laughs) And a couple of years later, I was approached by the, the Bank of Illinois. They wanted to set up a computer department in the bank, set up a computer department, a for-profit business. And I told the president of the bank, I said, look, if I take this job, I'm going to get drafted. He said, no, no, you can keep your draft deferment because I've already talked to the president of the college. And he said, it would be fine with him if you took this job. So I worked two jobs. I was making over $30,000 a year as a 23-year-old kid started my business the day that I couldn't get drafted anymore, which was my 26th birthday. So it's a really rapid rise. And I went into business and that's when things turned the other way. A really difficult time making it. It was a struggle, but I made a lot of mistakes. Didn't really have any background in being in business. And uh, over the years, I picked up a lot of it and it worked out pretty well. So what were some of the key lessons that you learned in those early days of business? Well, I was a pretty cocky young man. (laughs) It was not hard for me to get through college and do pretty well with it. And I just felt like I could conquer the world. But I took no business classes at all in college. I was going to be a math professor. And it wasn't until I was, you know, maybe 20, 23 or 24 years old that I really decided that I wanted to go into my in business. Uh, my parents hated their jobs. They hated capitalists. 
they believed that uh, blue collar workers were swindled out of their hard work and not paid fairly by the rich people. And that's the environment I grew up in. It took a lot of reading. I changed my mind about, about uh, can you be an ethical person and also be successful financially? I changed my view of that in my early 20s and decided you could be very ethical and be in business, do good for the world, being more prepared, being more open, other thoughts, other ideas, and the experiences of successful people was really important. Probably the number one thing I learned is 80% of the people in this world are, are good people and will do the right thing as long as that they feel like they're part of the group that they're, they're respectful of. But there are people who are evil. There are people who thrive and love and, and luxuriate in the idea of bringing down others. And that surprised me a lot. And it's something that it's just true. There's just some evil people out there. And there's some people on the other side completely who will do anything to help anybody uh, with all their uh, might and ability. So we have a lot of people I don't think really learn how bad some folks can get. When people think you're a billionaire, which I'm not, they can be pretty, they can uh, do bad things or try to do bad things uh, to you. I wish my, my kids don't really quite get that. Uh, to this day, they don't get that. They've been taken advantage of in some ways that they shouldn't have been. So those are a couple of things I learned. Talking about toxic people there. Did you encounter more when you were starting your business or as the business got more and more successful? When people think that you're going to make a lot of money, <laughs> uh, I think that's when, when it happened uh, per, pretty much. I, I had this idea that my plan was to become a millionaire by the time I was 30. Well, when I got to be 30, I was completely broke. Nobody bothered me then. When uh, something started to work, then a whole lot of folks became very interested in uh, my future. I was told so many times of what a great future I had, golden boy. And, and I sort of was an uh, all-American boy in, in my early 20s. But I became disabused of that <laughs> as I learned uh, the, how the struggle of financial success requires some good fortune and uh, work that I never did uh, in advance. As you're in encountering more toxic people, how did you kind of guard or protect yourself or stay strong to continue going forward and grow your company? Like a lot, a lot of people, I got in trouble financially fairly quickly. I, mean, I, I had $10,000 in the bank when I started my business which I thought was an awful lot of money. And I had three children at the time. So the way I dealt with the to toxic situations is for many years, I, I felt like I'm not going to go into this, but there were three really big mistakes that I made in my 20s and 30s. And in every case, did something that I knew was going to be a problem. But I, had, I was cocky enough to think that I could overcome it. Growing up the way I grew up in the house that I grew up in, uh, if you could survive growing up with and, and remaining alive with my father, you could accomplish a whole lot right there. The three things, the three biggest mistakes I ever made, every single time, it was because I knew I was doing something that wasn't 
a good idea, but I didn't have the determination to stand up for what I believed in. And I learned that the hard way. And I think that's been part of the reason I've been much more successful the last 30 years of my career than the first 20 or 30 years of my career. So as your company grew and was becoming more and more successful, did the work culture or anything change? Was it the same when there was 10 employees, when there was 100, when there was 1,000 employees, or was it different? Running a company with 10 employees is a whole different thing than running in a, a company with 4,000 employees. It gives me, and people who are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs should be really feel good about this comment, is when you have 10 employees, you can really make a big difference with each of those employees, be a leader, deal with their issues and their concerns, pay really close attention to everything they say about how the business can be better, save money, make more money, etc. And the bigger you get, the more and more distant you get from that. At one point, for many years, I knew all my customers and all my employees my employees. It just makes sense, right? If you're running a a $4 billion company, there's no way you can go talk to all the employees and get to know them. The thing I'm most proud of in my career is that 87% of my employees, my company was a great place to work. I'm like, wow, my dad hated his job. My mom was a waitress and she was always tired because they were working the night shift all the time. And so to have 87% of your employees anonymously say you have a great company, that's really terrific. And it's good for your ego. And okay, this is working really well. We weren't meeting the the needs for attention and to give everybody a chance to make a big contribution. We weren't able to do that as much as we got bigger. So entrepreneurs, the bigger guy, you have it better than the big guys, even though you have fewer resources. Because you have yourself and you're going to be able to have yourself diluted less by having a fewer employees. And the bigger and more successful you get, now you're dependent upon other people for the, you know, as well as yourself. One thing to manage people directly. It's another thing to manage the managers of the people and then the managers of the managers of the managers of the people. And uh, it's it just common sense, I think. And uh, that's, that was my experience. As the company was growing, how were you taking in this new knowledge or changing or adapted to be the one that instead of manages the small team, then manages the managers or manages the managers of the managers? Well, I, it was all completely on the job training. <laughs> I have this a pretty narrow view of what ethics and how things should be. And it's more important, way more important to me. How do we make our money? then how much money do we make? But when you become a bigger company and you have outside investors who are looking to make a big profit based on what you're doing, they don't want to hear things like, it's more important to me how I earn my money than how much money I make. Because investor doesn't care. And this is one of the problems with capitalism is that the the people who are creating the values What's the value? The value is based upon what investors think the future growth of the company is going to be. Because future growth of the company means increases in the value of the shares of the company. I stuck with my belief the entire way, all the way 
And as I got, we got bigger and we became a public company and there's a board of directors elected by the stockholders. And instead of owning half the company, now you own 2% of the company and you're 70 years old. It gets a lot harder to deal with Wall Street people. It's a one-track mind of investors and directors. And that one-track mind is how do you get the company to grow faster and be more profitable? That's not the same thing as making your money in an honest, ethical way. And people are rewarded for the growth, not for the way they get that growth. When your company was going to go public, the exit, what are some things that happened in that process or that were going on that maybe the average person here has no idea about? Well, first of all, we are going public was not an exit for us. We went public in 2005 at a valuation of about $600 million. And then we sold out in 2015, $4.3 What people don't know is I was... Um, Every board meeting, we had a board that never had a, anything but a unanimous vote in uh, those 10 years as a public company because we would have disagreements. But at the end of the day, everybody was polite and voted with whoever, whichever side was going to win. Bothered me a lot is that I was always, <laughs> I knew that if I had a new idea that came on that was not obviously something that would cause us to have immediate growth, I was being criticized. So over and over again, I would say things like, maybe the next CEO of this company will do that, but I'm not going to do it. I did, and that wasn't something that everybody appreciated. And I probably felt that more than my board even knew that, that I did. And then, you know, when I turned 55 and then 57 and then 60 and and it's obvious, and we're all going to uh, uh, move on uh, and move out of this life at some point. Having a successor and a succession plan is a really big deal. And over the years, a constant topic of discussion at every board meeting, and four or five different people over those years as my number two who could inherit my position, the board didn't like any of them. <laughs> I liked all of them, but the board was never happy with my ideas about succession planning. And quite frankly, I, I had turned 70 in, in 2015 and I knew that was my, I was out of rope at that point. There was no way that I was going to be able, the board was ready to sell. They thought, okay, we're at the top of the mountain. Let's sell this thing out. Let's cash out. Uh, Bob, you're, you know, you're, you're a young 70-year-old, so you, you'll have a great life ahead of you. It's time for us to take our money and get out. And I knew I couldn't overcome that. That was, I, that was the battle I could not win. And so I just went along with it and sold the company. You know, we sold the company. But it wasn't a happy time for me. And then while this was going on, while you were building this company, your kids were also growing up. Can you share some advice on your experience with raising a family at the exact same time as growing this company? Well, I think a lot of people do a really good job of managing that. I am not a person who is an expert on a balanced lifestyle. But here's the number one answer to that. And I'm surprised that I'm saying this, but it's uh, really true. My kids knew how much, how important it was 
for me to do business in the right way is at least what I thought was the right way. I also did a lot of charity work, putting disadvantaged kids through college. And my kids, they loved the fact that I loved this so much. And when they were littler, I would never miss dinner. I mean, I would travel and obviously I wouldn't be home then. I'd travel maybe one or two days a week when they were littler. I would always, I would never come to work or stay over at work during dinner time. So I always have dinner with my kids when I was not traveling. Just naturally wanted to do things with them and did. We took a lot of trips together. So I did, I did what felt natural to me. And I knew that I was making a choice of what to do. And it was more important for me to spend time with my kids. And after all these years, my oldest child is 50 years old now. My youngest is 30. So they've all grown up. They have been very kind to me uh, that I was a a pretty good father. So that, that makes me feel really good. So with that, many parents shelter their kids from business and business activities. How much knowledge or engagement would you recommend a parent encourage their children to have? How much of your business did they know about growing up? Well, they knew a lot about it because uh, I was in business from the age of 26 on. So they knew about the business. It was, you know, my family and my business. That that was my life. And as my kids got older, then it was my business and my charity. I lead a pretty intense life, I think, uh, to this day. And I feel very fortunate to be in good enough health to, to, to do that. My oldest child, Corey, both worked for the company. At one point, we had five employees. They were two of them. I was one of them. And my wife was another one and uh, one salesperson in North Carolina. That was the company for a while. My son, my next oldest child, he never really wanted to work in the business. He was a very dynamic uh, superstar member of his fraternity. To this day, he his fraternity friends are like a second family to him. And he didn't want to be in the business world. He told me that I don't want to have to work as hard as you do. (laughs) And then my other kids really haven't wanted to work in the business, but they know all about the business because we talk about it all the time. And when we got uh, to the point where we were pretty successful, I set up trust funds, you know, for them. And now they have the burden of being a trust fund baby, which is a real issue, by the way, for for these kids. I hope that answers that question. Trust fund children. Just wondering, was there any worries that you had when newfound wealth suddenly appeared after you sold your company? Was there any concerns about that, how people might change? There were, and that's a really good question. Let me say this. In 2001, I sold half of the company to some investors for $40 million. When I did that, I set up funds for my kids and said, I think you're going to have a lot of money with the success of this company, but dad is not giving you, I'm going to put you through college and here's money that's going in your trust fund in the form of shares of the company. And if we're successful, you're not going to ever see another penny from dear old dad because I'm going to give it all to the Give Back Foundation, which is the foundation I set up. And we're going to put as many disadvantaged kids through college as possible. And that's what we did. One thing that I did right was 
for each one of my kids. They were not able to draw down any money out of their trust fund until they turned 35 years old. When they were 35, they could take one third of the money out and spend it however they wanted. 25, they got the first third. At 35, they got the next third and they got the rest of it at age 50. That was worked out perfectly. All six of my kids been great uh, stewards of their money, have, have not thrown it away or you know they've used it very, very well. Because they know their dad sold his company for $4.3 billion, they're approached by people who want to be their friends and that, and I think they've handled it you know, very, very well. I got to ask then, you're 70, you're well off, you can just retire on the beach and sip lemonade for the rest of your days, but instead you decide to start another company. Why? I started this scholarship program back in 2003 to pay back a scholarship that I had received when I graduated from high school. Scholarship for $250 from the local women's club. My picture was on the front page of the Joliet Herald News. I had no idea why I was chosen. I didn't apply for anything, but it just made me feel really good. I got a plaque and all this. And when I went off to college, I'm like, you know, I'm going to pay that money back to them someday. And so it took a long time, but when I sold the half of the company for $40 million, I sent them a check for $5,000. And I said, I know it's been a long time, but I just wanted to give you this money back to give you this money with interest to help other kids in the future. And it was, I was done with it. A few weeks later, I get this note card from this woman who says, Bob, you don't remember me. I'm Mrs. Latour. And you were the crossing guard for my three daughters in sixth grade at Ludwig School. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And she said, you're the first person in 53 years that's ever given us money back, scholarship recipients. And we would love for you to come to our annual meeting and talk to us. So I went to the annual meeting and I had just sold, like I said, I had that big lot of, a lot of money. They told me that it was their 100th anniversary. And I'm like, you're kidding. Said, let's, I'll tell you what, let me make that 5,000, 100,000, and let's pick five kids and help them get through college. And so that's what happened. And we worked with the local high school where I went to high school and we did that. And every year it worked so well the first year, we did it again. At this point, we have 1,350 kids either in college, graduated from college, or in high school on their way to college. As we've gotten bigger and bigger in the scholarship program and seen the impact, it's amazing the impact that we've made on these families, not just these kids, but their families. And I figured out a way that we could, we have 30 university partners and we've been able to put kids through college with $20,000 per kid, four years of college. And we do that by taking kids who are very disadvantaged, foster children, children of incarcerated parents, homeless kids. These kids are all eligible for Pell Grants and state grants. So we've worked with universities to take those grants plus our money and put these kids through college. If you can put a kid through college for $20,000 or go drink martinis, I, I'm just going to help these kids because I, it's better for me. I love doing it. It's so much appreciated and we're doing good stuff. 
and the people in the company. I started a company. Why? So we could get make more and more $20,000, put more and more kids through college. And I think we have a program as we keep making it better and better and helping more and more disadvantaged kids. We're going to be able to put tens of thousands of kids through college with this new company. I mean, just think about that. So that's why it's a pretty easy answer for me. By the way, I, I don't like martinis, but I, I do like Bahama Mamas and I do go on vacations. <laughs> I should have had that drink in the question. Then, so. <laughs> but with that, okay, so now you've started a new company, you're mission driven, you're helping thousands and you're going to help tens of thousands. What were all the lessons you learned from that first company that you're able to implement in this new, this second company? Well, that's an easy answer for me. And that is that trust is everything. Absolutely everything. If people trust you and believe that you're an honest person, it's a whole different world than if people distrust you or you know, think you're a bad person. So that's number one. Number two is be intellectually honest. Like I said it earlier, the three biggest mistakes in my, I made in my life was, were I knew I was doing something that I shouldn't be doing. I did it anyway, feeling I was so smart, I could get out of any mess I created. Well, I got out of it, but uh, it was sure painful along the way. And then with this new company, I mean, you had mentioned helping in tens of thousands of people for the mission of the company. What about the company itself? Are you planning on taking this public as well or selling it, getting it acquired? What kind of the the goals are going to happen to this company? Goals for this company to be very successful, for me to find a new leader, uh, the sooner the better to become head of it, for us to go public and become worth, you know, big, a big number and have that money go to help do what we're doing, maybe even internationally, not just in the U.S. There's a tremendous need for what we're doing, and we change people's lives for the better, and they always appreciate it. And with this current company or your past company, anything in your entire business career, can you share with us one or two stories of where you learned a lesson? One of those three things. And that was in high school, I broke up with my girlfriend or she dumped me for, I was on the swimming team. I was a backstroker and the guy who beat me on the swimming team in backstroke, he dumped me and it went out for him. And then he dumped her. And one day I go into high school and all of my books are back in her locker. (laughs) And I knew I should never go back. And I did, and it didn't work out in the long run. So there's an example. I knew I was doing the dumb thing. Bob, is there a successful individual in business that you admire and why? There is absolutely someone in business that I admire, and that's Bill Gates. Back in the late 70s and the early 80s, I was writing software. The operating system at the time was called CPM. It was a terrible operating system, but we all suffered through it, did the best we could. And then this guy Gates comes along with DOS, the disk operating system. And it changed my life and the life of most IT people. And then he goes on to build this multi-billion dollar company now. And what's he do? He spends a lot of his time helping people in Africa 
not get malaria and helping all over the country with his charity, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were both brilliant. Bill Gates was not successful because he stole Apple software (laughs) from Steve Jobs. He was uh, successful, beyond successful in his own right. And he's doing what all, I believe, in a philosophy of Milton Hershey, of the Hershey Chocolate Company. Milton Hershey said, it is a sin for a rich man to die, or for a man to die rich. And Bill Gates is going to probably, he can't help but dying for it. Me, my goal is to die when my last dollar is spent. Everybody possible is going, benefited from our charity work. Then with that, how should one think about life, what they do? I believe you go back to the core principle. To me, in all of life, what's the single most important decision you have to make? And this is my way I look at it. You know, at the age of 13, when I was going through confirmation, the minister at the congregational church was very clear. He says, are you going to devote your life to the Bible says, or are, are you not? And if you're going to, then you need to do it honestly and completely and follow the rules of the Bible. And when I went off to college, I realized, you know, I didn't believe in an afterlife. And therefore, I'm not going to spend all my time trying to live the way the Bible says. I believe in the principles and all that. Everlasting life, being a math guy, everlasting is a long time. <laughs> so if you're going to have everlasting life, why wouldn't that be the best thing possible for you, for everybody to really have? I just got, came to the point where I didn't believe in it. And what's the next thing? And in ethics class, philosophy 102 at the University of Illinois, I formed the opinion at that time that doing the most good for the most people is the highest priority. That's John Stuart Mill, his way of saying it. Transcendentalism, I think is the name of it. Do the most good you can for the most people. Carlos Castaneda was another person. Take care of yourself. And then if you have extra leftover, take care of your family. And then if you have extra leftover, take care of your extended family. And then wider and wider, help as many people as you can in the best possible way. And it's really simple. I can't think of a better thing to do than to take an underprivileged kid and help them get through college. That's, to me, the best value I can do with my resources and my time. And so that's the way I look at life. Every person in this world is better off than a lot of other people. And you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be handling billions of dollars. All of us can do more to help people who, who need our help and some of our talents. And with all the charity work you're involved in, with selling a company for over $4 billion and your new company, what type of legacy do you want to leave behind? One of the proud moments of my life when I was introduced in a, in a big group as a speaker and was introduced as the most authentic CEO in America. I don't know if that's true, but if I could put one word on a gravestone, it would be authentic. And also, I've heard that you've extensively traveled the U.S. Can you share a (laughs) bit about these adventures with our audience? (laughs) In my 20s and 30s, I decided, first of all, I'm going to go to a baseball stadium in every baseball 
in every stadium in the country. There's 30 baseball teams. I've been to 47 stadiums because 17 of the stadiums I saw in the past have been torn down. Then I decided I wanted to go visit every state capital in America. And so I did that. And there's uh, 50 states, obviously. There's 50 state capitals. And it is a heck of a lot of fun running around the country and going spending some time in every state capitol building, which I've done. And then I decided I want to go visit every a birthplace and burial ground of famous people. And I chose the presidents. And so I went and visited up until Ronald Reagan. I think I got all the presidents, birthplaces, burial grounds. And I stopped doing that after a while. <laughs> I haven't seen one since then. So that, that's how I got to see the country. And I've seen a lot of the country. There are 3,450 counties in America, which means there's 3,450 county seats. At one time, I was going to try to get to every county seat in America, but I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> well, if you ever come out to Silicon Valley on your next <laughs> trip or that, please let, let me know. And with that, Bob, I have to thank you for this amazing interview. If anyone wants to find out more about you, your company, your charity, what's the best way to go about doing it? Thank you for asking is to go to uh, Get Beyond dot com, which is our website for the company, and giveback.ngo, which is our website for the uh, Give Something Back charity. Great. All that information will be in the show notes. And Bob, I have to say thank you again for being on the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our audience out there, please write a review on iTunes, share with your network. This encourages us to create more great content like this. And once again, Bob, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the great questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.